I'm going to be honest with you, I love Christmas. And one of my favorite things about Christmas is Christmas lights, okay? If you go by my front yard, you can probably tell, if you've ever been by there, um, that we have added to our collection. You can't yet see us from the space station, but that is the eventual goal, okay? Now, the weird thing is, I've always been weird about lights. Like, literally, and this is not an exaggeration, almost every Christmas, I get a flashlight or a headlamp or something from my family. Like, it's almost every Christmas for my entire life. Now, part of that probably goes back to the fact that my first distinct memory of a nightmare was that there was, uh, my parents had woods up behind their house, and um, there was a giant, like, 30-foot owl that came out of the woods and reached into my bedroom window and grabbed me. That was my my first memory of a nightmare, okay? So probably it started there, may have started before, but ever since then, I've been a little bit afraid of the dark, and uh, Rebecca was down here the other day and can attest to you just how creepy this building is in the dark. Um, If you've never been in a church building when it's alone and it's dark, it's very easy to get yourself spooked. Um, I'm bad about like if I'm in a, a big empty parking lot, there was a parking lot near my dorm at Liberty that, um, that at night, you know, and it's like foggy and misty and there's just a, you know, you barely see those islands of light from the, the, the street lights there in the parking lot, you know. I'm, I'm bad about getting my mind worked up about what's beyond the edges, you know, about what's unknown and getting unnerved. And I, you know, walk a little quicker to my car, you know. Of course, I'm <clears throat> totally grown out of that. That's... Uh, <clears throat> But, you know, this theme of light and darkness is something that plays out all over our society, all over our world. It's something that goes throughout history. In fact, there's a lot of speculation about why we celebrate Christmas when we do. We know that December 25th has very little likelihood that that actually was the day that Jesus was born. But one of the reasons why December 25th is actually celebrated as Jesus' birthday or the day we celebrate his birth is because that's the first day after the solstice that you can start to notice more light. If you, if you know, the, the winter solstice is the darkest day of the year. It's the shortest day of the year as far as daylight's concerned. And so by the 25th, you start getting a little bit more light, and it starts to be noticeable. So some have said that that's why early Christians started celebrating Jesus' birth around this time, because it was the time when we started to see the light coming back. Now, like I said, that, that picture of light and dark comes into a lot of our stories. One of the stories that does this a lot is, uh, you know, the idea of Star Wars, right? I've got my baby Yoda mask from The Mandalorian. But if you remember the original Star it's yes, it's, I'm not going to say the actual name because some of you guys aren't caught up. Uh, they, they did finally name this baby this season, so uh, I'm not going to do that because it might be a spoiler, all right? However, if you've ever watched the original Star Wars, go back to late 70s, you know, and watch the, the other one. What was that first one called? It was episode four, Star Wars, A New Hope. Now, if you remember the soul story with Star Wars is you've got these folks who are these Jedi who have these special powers, and they're having to fight against the temptation to go to the dark side, right? So you see this battle of light and dark that plays out. In fact, from the very opening scene of Star Wars, A New Hope, you remember, you see, you're introduced to this big, dark, scary character, Darth Vader, who we find out later is one of these Jedi who's gone to the dark side. And if you remember, you see Princess Leia as she is, is recording a message that's played back later. Do you remember what the last line of that message was? She was talking to one Obi-Wan Kenobi, and she said, help us, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You are our only hope. You're our only hope. We've got at least one Star Wars nerd with us today. I'm glad for it, Tim, because Jason's not here. So I'm sorry if you're watching online, Jason. I I tried, but you weren't here, man. So this morning, though, as we look at this idea of hope, 
and the light and the dark. Here's what I want you to see out of all of these things. As we talk about the hope for 2021, we're not hoping in a Jedi to come and rescue us. And we're also not hoping in an emotion or a feeling or some kind of wishy-washy, ethereal. Our only hope is in a person. Now, we're going to see that in John chapter 1 this morning. So go ahead and open your Bibles up to John chapter 1 if you haven't seen it. Now, like I said, hope is an interesting word in 2020 because so many of us are hoping that 2021 is going to be better. Whether it's that we're hoping that the vaccine is going to finally bring an end to the pandemic or that the political changes will improve our situation in some way. There's so many of us who are just hoping. Some of us just kind of have this blind hope that, that we're just wishing 2021 is going to be better than 2020. Can I, as your pastor, lovingly, gently try to tell you something this morning? We actually have no guarantee that 2021 is going to be any better than 2020, okay? We, we have no guarantee that the pandemic's going to disappear or that this is going to happen or these kind of things. And we have no guarantee. There may be something even worse than 2020 around the corner in 2021. Now, I know all of you are so glad that you tuned in or that you came this morning so I could encourage you so greatly. But it's sobering to think about. If we are looking to a political change or a vaccine or anything like that for hope for next year, I'm afraid that we may be disappointed. So this morning, then, I want us to start looking at this issue of hope. And instead of us cultivating this wishy-washy, I hope it gets better next year, this feeling that we describe as hope, like we hope it doesn't snow much this winter, I want to give you a rock-solid hope this morning that cannot be taken away that nothing can erode or destroy. And we're going to see that in John chapter 1. Now, this may not be your usual Christmas passage. We'll be in Luke 2 next week, so we'll be looking at the regular, kind of more traditional Charlie Brown Christmas story. But as we're looking at this this morning, I want you to see this clear reality that, that hope is not an emotion, it's a person. Whether we feel like it or not, when we talk about hope, we're not talking about wishing that things would get better or feeling and hoping in that kind of way. I'm not trying to be a motivational speaker today, by the way. It's not my job to hype you up and send you out. It's my job to help you to anchor your soul, anchor your being, anchor everything you are in what is true hope. We're talking about looking to the future with confidence that's based not on an outcome of a circumstance, but on the unchanging character of a very incredible person. And this is the one who all Christmas is about. He's the one whose birth we celebrate, and he's the one who is a source of our hope as we look at the days ahead of us. Read this passage with me. If you're not familiar with this passage, before we get started, there's some poetic language in here. John's using figures of speech. He's using different things like that. So as we look through this, we're going to take some time to explain it. But but read it with me because it's beautiful as we go through it. John chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But 
To all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as of the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him and exclaimed, This was the one of whom I said, The one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. For The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The one and only Son who is himself God and is at the Father's side, he has revealed him. Now that's a lot, and there's a whole lot in this passage. So let's take some time to dive in and try to look at this. The first thing I want to do is we're saying that, that hope is not an emotion, it's a person, is let's look at the person of our hope. Who is it that we're talking about here? Who are we describing? Well, just to make it plain, simple, and easy, the person who is our hope is Jesus. This is Jesus who was born in a manger, who was born and laid there in this feeding trough for animals, there in the city of Bethlehem, born to his mother Mary and his kind of half-dad, uh, or not really half-dad, stepdad, Joseph. He had brothers, he had sisters eventually, but this guy, Jesus. Now, as we look at the way that John describes Jesus in this passage, he uses some different words for him. He describes him as light. He describes him as the word. He describes him as life. So let, let's try to break that apart a little bit. When he's starting at this, it's highlighting parts of the nature of that baby in the manger that we celebrate. Verses 1 and 2 talk about him as the word. Look at it again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. By the way, this is one of the things that sets true Christianity apart from all of the other cults, all of the other religions. This is why we say that those who are Jehovah's Witnesses, those who are Mormon, those who, anybody who doesn't believe in this very verse is not truly a Christian because the Bible clearly teaches us that Jesus is God. Okay, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses both teach differently than that. They look at this passage differently, they're wrong. Just going to say it. I don't usually get that direct, but let's just say they're wrong, okay? Now, from the beginning of this, we see that from the very beginning, we're looking at some incredible truths. First, we see that Jesus existed in the beginning. Now, there's an interesting thing happening in the Greek here that you don't see in English. In the Greek, he doesn't add the word the there. It just says in beginning. Well, why didn't he use the word thee? Well, because what John's referring to is the very beginning of time, space, matter, and everything but God. So he's, this is a beginning that's unlike any other beginning. It's kind of like how we don't typically say, and I know some of you guys are a little more country, and you might say, I'm going to the Walmart. You don't have to say, I'm going to the Walmart. You just say, I'm going to Walmart, which, by the way, heads up, if you haven't seen it yet, they closed down the pharmacy doors. You got to go in through the grocery side, okay? Just save you the walk, all right? As you're going through this, you don't have to say the Walmart, because when you say, I'm going to Walmart, everybody knows it's the one on North Franklin, you're going to that Walmart, right? So at, in the same kind of way, when John says, in beginning was the word, he's saying, in the very beginning, the, the one that doesn't even have to be defined, it's because it's the one when everything else was defined. In the beginning was the word. He existed before everything else did from the very beginning when time, space, matter, and everything but God came into existence. Jesus is not a created being, and he is not less than God the Father. Jesus is eternally God. That's what we see clearly in that passage. The word was with God. The word was 
God. So the baby that we're celebrating, the little pink squishy baby that cried, was the eternally coexistent God who was there from the very beginning of time. Can you imagine that? Let this sink in. As we're thinking about trying to to figure out where do we hang our hope for the next year, think about the fact that, that there was this baby that was born that was God in the flesh, the eternal God sitting right there needing to eat, needing his diaper changed. Isn't that incredible? We find out something else interesting by reading verse three. All things were created through him. And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. See, although the Father was the one who initiated the idea of creation, Jesus was the actual agent of creation. Jesus was the the member of the Godhead who created the world. Everything was created through him. Not a single thing has been created apart from him. By the way, if you're ever talking to a Jehovah's Witness about the deity of Christ, this is the verse you go to. Don't go to verse 1, go to verse 3. Because it says literally everything that's been created was made by Jesus. Okay? So here he's not just the God who existed at the beginning. He's the God who made everything. Colossians chapter 1 says this. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Jesus was the agent of creation. He's the one who actually did the creating. Now, the deists of the 18th century and some today still believe that what God did was he created things and then he just kind of stepped back from it all and let it all just sort of run its course. It's the idea of the watchmaker who wound the watch and then he took his hands off and just let the watch run down. Some have looked at creation and said that's what God did, that that he must have just made everything and then stepped back and he doesn't intervene in the affairs of man. Look again. Verse 4, in him was life. That life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, yet the darkness did not overcome it. What we see from this is that the light and life and the word did not just stop and take his hands off and say, all right, I made it, you're on your own. But rather, he is the source of life. He's the sustainer of life. He's the light who comes into the world. Now, by the way, that idea of him being the light, we've seen that he's the word, he's the source of life. But he's also the light. Well, again, we've talked about that some, but what does that even mean? All right? It, it, you know, some of us have grown up in church and we've always heard about Jesus being the light of the world and stuff. So you've never actually stopped to think about what that actually means. Well, here's how one commentator put it. Light is commonly used in the Bible as an emblem of God. Darkness is commonly used to denote death, ignorance, sin, and separation from God. Isaiah described the coming of salvation as the people living in darkness seeing a great light. Okay? So what's happening here is Jesus is the light of the world, saying that he shines the nature of God into our fallen world. And that's, we're going to look at something a little bit more in just a little bit. But that's what Jesus is doing, is he's coming and bringing the light back to the world. You see, there's something that John doesn't really highlight here when he says that the light, the source of of life, the word created the world. But then verse 5 starts talking about darkness. Where did the darkness come from? You remember that after God created the world, there was a a man and a woman named Adam and Eve. God gave them one rule of what they were supposed to do, and what did they do? Broke the rule, right? They did the one thing God told them not to do, which is such a human thing, (laughs) right? Like some of y'all, you see a wet paint sign, and you just got to poke it. That's exactly what Adam and Eve did. 
They, they decided to do the one thing that God told them not to do. God told them, leave this alone, and instead, they went straight for it. In choosing to do what they wanted to do, and instead of what God wanted to do, they brought darkness to the world. They pushed the light away. God, instead of choosing to live life looking at things the way you show us, we're gonna close our eyes to that. Ever since then, we see darkness after darkness after darkness after darkness after darkness. You wanna know why the world is such a messed up place? Because of sin, because of darkness, because we've pushed God away and now there's death, there's destruction, there's discord, there's all of these things because we drove the light away. We rejected him. The Bible shows us throughout human history where we were trying to make our own light. You know, you go to the Tower of Babel and, and they were trying to make their way back to God. They were gonna build this big tower and prove how good they were. Yet God disrupted it because they could never be saved that way. You, you see folks in the Bible trying to, to make light by, by na- making a name for themselves, by accumulating a bunch of wealth or a bunch of pleasure or trying to worship a bunch of different gods to try to make them happy. And what they find is nothing ever satisfies it. God gave us his word and his goodness and his grace and his mercy. He told us what his standards were and he provided sacrifices to point us to our need for forgiveness and the sacrifice that he would one day provide. But in all of these things, what you find over and over again as you read through the stories of God's word is you find people who were just like us and failed miserably. I mean, the overwhelming stories of scripture are terrible where people just do the wrong thing over and over again. So when we're celebrating Christmas and looking to this person in whom we have hope, we're celebrating the God who took on flesh to bring light back to the world. The God we had rejected, but yet loved us so much to take on human flesh. He was bringing that light and life to bear on the world in a whole new way. The writer of Hebrews expresses it this way. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors, the prophets, at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. So yes, God spoke through the prophets, but now with Jesus coming to the world, God is speaking directly to his people as he's revealing himself to the world in a way he never had before. That's why our hope at Christmas isn't simply an emotion for us as Christians. It's not some vague sentimentality of peace on earth and goodwill towards men. You know why the angels declared that? Because God had come. He had taken on flesh for us. Guys, the the reason I keep holding my hands like this is, you ever held a baby like that? I mean, think about it. The the God of the universe, you could put his head in your hands. This isn't some mushy sentimentality that we hope that next year is gonna be better. No, we hope that that, that God took on flesh. and, And so because of that, we know beyond any shadow of a doubt that he's in charge and in control. We know that that baby that was born in a manger came for us. Our hope is in a person, the person Jesus, who has always existed, is co-equal with God the Father, who brought the world into existence and then in an unimaginable step in human history took human flesh to bring us back to himself. This is our hope, guys. It's not in a Jedi living in the back deserts of Tatooine. It's not in some 
political system or hoping that maybe your husband's finally going to get his head screwed on right or your family's going to finally feel better or whatever it's going to be. Our hope is in this baby that was born in the manger that's God in the flesh. This is the person of our hope. He brings peace and hope and goodwill in our lives now. And in one day, he establishes his kingdom in all of fullness like Jack was talking about, like we've been talking about. All of the earth will experience that same peace. Now, you may be here and you're not fully convinced yet that you can put your hope in Jesus, okay? We've hinted at it, but let's take a look together at what John says our hope did when he came. See if that helps. So the person of our hope is Jesus, God in the flesh, the eternal creator God, who was born to bring the light and life back to the world. So what did he actually do? Second thing we see is the actions of our hope. What was it that Jesus was doing? We'll jump down to verse 14. He says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now pause right there, guys. That means that God, who existed from eternity past, actually took on a human body. If you and I were to go to heaven right now, and walk up to Jesus, which, by the way, if you know the way that John describes him in Revelation, we wouldn't just walk up to him. John, when he saw him, passed out at his feet, okay? But just for the sake of argument, if you just walked right up to Jesus, you could touch Jesus in heaven right now. Because when he took on human flesh, he never got rid of it. This was this incredible unification of God and man that's unheard of in any philosophical or religious system outside of the world. This is it. This is the only people who look at things this way. Jesus is God in the flesh. Now, that causes an issue, doesn't it? Because down in verse 18, it says, no one has ever seen God. The one and only Son who is is himself God and is at the Father's right hand, he has revealed it. So here's what we say. Well, why is it that somebody can say that that nobody's seen God, and then you're telling me that Jesus is God. Well, when John says that no one has seen God, he's saying that no one has ever seen God in his essential nature, okay? When he appeared in the Old Testament, he would take on the form of a person, but God is, by nature, spiritual. This is how one commentator put it. Let's see if this clears it up or if it makes it worse. (laughs) He said, the statement that no one has ever seen God may seem to raise a problem. Did not Isaiah say, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty? God in his essence is invisible. He is one whom no one has seen or can see. But John 1.18 means no one has ever seen God's essential nature. God may be seen in a theophany or anthropomorphism, but his inner essence or nature is disclosed only in Jesus. So nobody's been able to look directly on God himself. But when Jesus came, he showed us what God looked like. He showed us God's essence. Now, that doesn't mean that, as some have narrowed it down and said, well, then that means only the things we see Jesus do is what God would do. No, God's been working throughout human history, and so all the things we see in the Old Testament, the things we see in the remainder of the New Testament, God was working and doing those things and revealed parts of himself through that. But in Jesus, he revealed himself in a unique way. Now, what did he do? Well, go back to verse 14. It said that he revealed because we've observed his glory, the glory as of the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now let's look at those three words real quick. Glory, grace, and truth, because those are essential for us to understand why we can put our hope in Jesus. First is the word glory, okay? Now this is a weird word because nowhere do we use it outside of 
church settings, right? We don't talk about glorious sunrises hardly anymore, you know, things like that. But when we talk about glory, it can be a tricky term to define. One author describes it this way. He says this, literally, the Hebrew word translated glory means weight, and the Greek word means praise. So the concept that both are heading toward is that God is the one who is massive, great, ponderous, and magnificent. Ponderous is a big word, isn't it? It's kind of what we're getting at with glory. God is this big, massive thing. In addition, throughout the Old and New Testament, the glory of God is connected to his presence with his people. Whenever God's glory shows up, it's always in his presence with people. They remember when Solomon prayed to dedicate the temple, God's glory descended on the temple and they couldn't go into minister because God's glory was there. So when we talk about Jesus coming and revealing God's glory, He's revealing that essential part of God that makes God, God. The part that makes him so majestic, so so huge, so amazing, so ponderous, so magnificent, so great. The, The thing that language is difficult to find to describe, Jesus came to reveal the glory of God to us. How did he do that? Well, he did that through teaching us who God was. But he also did that through demonstrating the power of God on earth. Think about all the times that Jesus healed people who had been blind or who had been lame since they were born or folks who had died, he raised from the dead or calmed storms simply by speaking them into existence. By the way, why could Jesus calm a storm by saying, hey, peace, be still? Well, if he could say, hey, let there be light, he could say, hey, let that chill out for a minute, right? He's the very God who spoke these things into existence and created, so of course he has the power to say, peace, be still. So as Jesus went around doing all these things, he demonstrated that our God is a glorious, powerful, majestic God. In case you're wondering, by the way, the the disciples in the book of Acts, some of the apostles, as they went out and they were ministering, there were times where they did things like what Jesus did, like healing somebody, and people thought they were gods. They immediately, like, there's one story where where Paul was ministering and they they healed somebody, and the, the priest actually comes out from the temple of Zeus thinking that this is Zeus and Hermes. Like, they're getting ready to sacrifice a cow to them because they think they're God's taking on flesh. Jesus really was. He was demonstrating the glory of God. That's pretty awesome to think about. When you read through the Gospels and you see him performing miracles, he's showing his power over nature, over illness, over demons, and ultimately over death. And God and God alone can do these things. So that baby that was laid in a feeding trough, like, guys, you know, we, we use that word manger all the time because that's the word the King James used. It made a lot more sense to them. But for us, that's this little wood thing that you put straw in. That, it's a feeding trough, okay? The picture in your head is actually, by the way, it, it may have even been just kind of a, an indentation in the floor at one end of somebody's house. That's where they put the straw. The animals were on a lower level. The house was up on a higher level. So the animals would come up and they'd eat out of this. They, they put Jesus in a feeding trough. Some of y'all have never been on a farm, so you don't know what that looks like, but it's gross, all right? That's where they put this baby who was demonstrating to us the glory of God. He was interjecting the light of God into the darkness by showing who God really is instead of our distorted picture of him. Not only did he show us God's glory, he also showed us God's grace. He demonstrated God's grace. Grace is the idea of God giving us what we don't deserve, all right? Look down at verse 17. It says that the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Remember that when God gave the law to Moses, it was a list of requirements and regulations. 
There were feasts to observe. There were sacrifices to make. There were practices to avoid, things to do, things to not do. You could think that from that, that knowing what's right and wrong would equip you to be the best person you could be. I mean, God flat out laid out for you everything you were supposed to do, everything you were not supposed to do, and what you were supposed to do when you got it wrong. But what do we find over and over and over and over again? They couldn't do it, right? When you look throughout the story of the Old Testament, you see God showed them exactly what to do. He told them what to do. He gave them patience while he let them, like, try to figure out what they were going to figure out what to do. And every single time they So what happened? Well, when Jesus came, he demonstrated the grace of God. See, as important as education is in teaching us what's right and what's wrong, it cannot overcome the human heart. That's why God didn't stop at the law. Paul tells us that the law was like a school teacher and its purpose was to point us to Christ, to show us that here's God's standard and you and I will never match that. You and I can never achieve the standard that God set. And so that's why when Jesus came, he demonstrated that God's goodness and grace was such that he would love you so much that he would die in your place, that he would take the punishment for your sin. So he demonstrated to us the grace of God, God giving us his riches at Christ's expense. That's why Jesus was coming He comes in with this beautiful truth called grace to give us what we don't deserve. He knew we couldn't keep the law, so Jesus showed us grace by dying in our place to forgive our sins and to offer us his righteousness in its stead. That's the one our hope is in, guys. That's the source of our hope, this baby who was born eventually to die for us, to demonstrate God's glory and to demonstrate God's grace. He also came, by the way, in truth says, in truth. Now, as Jesus went through his life in ministry, he never told a lie. He never colored the truth. He did use tact at times, but he would package his ways, words in a way that they could be understood or even try to obscure his meaning sometimes. But he never lied, and he never shied away from saying what needed to be said. Why is that important? Because a God who deceives is not worth serving. A God who lies, a God who's untruthful, is not a God that's worth following because you never know if he's telling you the truth or not. However, when Jesus came, he came as truth. I was browsing around on the internet this morning and found a book by a guy who was talking about an idea called liminal thinking. I know nothing about this other than the fact that I read about it for about five minutes this morning. But all it took was about five minutes for me to get enough of what I needed to know. He's talking about a pyramid of belief, and at the bottom of the pyramid of belief was reality. And he said about reality that you and I cannot ever know what is truly real. Yes, we can. You know how we know? Because the Word of God, God in the flesh, full of light and life, came, walked among us, and revealed the truth of God to us. Guys, the world around us does not believe that absolute truth is a thing. There's there's always a thought that you just don't understand or you're looking at different parts of the elephant, if you know that analogy. That's not true. The Bible clearly says that Jesus came to reveal to us what is truth. By the way, what is truth? John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the life, and the truth. Sean, how do you know? I know because of how he's transformed my life. 
I know because of what his word says. I know because of what I've seen. What does all that have to do with hope in the midst of the dumpster fire that is 2020? Well, when we look at what Jesus was doing in revealing God's glory and grace and truth, then that means we can look with hope to an uncertain future. No matter what happens to the economy, no matter what happens to the politics and anything else, or the virus, or your kids, or your marriage, or the climate, or race relations, or fill in the blank, whatever you're hoping in 2021 is gonna be better, no matter what happens with any of this, there is a God who in truth and in reality and in all honesty and in all sincerity loved you so much that he would take on flesh, would die in your place, would raise from the dead and now rules and reigns over all of creation. That is our hope. The God who's seated at the right hand of God the Father, who intercedes on my behalf, whose blood allows me to come directly to God. He is our hope. He showed us God's glory, God's grace, and God's truth, and that leads us then to the outcome of our hope. When our hope came into the world, he revealed God to us, shining light on our wickedness and God's goodness and offering the hope in himself. Just like we saw in the Sermon on the Mount a few weeks ago, John tells us that there's basically two different categories where people responded to this one who is our hope. As you read verse 5, it says the light shines in the darkness and the darkness didn't overcome it. Then you go down to verse 9, it said the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Then verse 10, he was in the world, the world was created through him, yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, but his own people didn't receive him. There was a group of people who should have known who Jesus was. The people who God gave his law to, the people who had studied God's word, the the people who knew him in theory better than anybody else, came to them and showed them where they were wrong, and they missed it. They missed it. They rejected him. You know, it's possible that you've been in church or you've heard these messages your entire life and you too have rejected Christ. Here's what he says, though. That's one response. You can reject him or, verse 12, but to all who did receive him, he gave the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. When God draws you to himself and you plant your life and your trust and your hope in him, he gives you the right to be a child of God. By the way, this is more accurately translated sons of God. Translators have gone with children because they didn't want to be offensive in our our culture. I understand that. But you have to understand in those days, sons had rights that daughters didn't. Sons stood to inherit. Daughters didn't. Not in the same way at least. So when Jesus is talking, he draws us to himself. We enter into the same relationship with God that any son would have. Now, I don't fully understand the mystery of this. We know that there's a relationship that's always existed between God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And in some kind of incredible, mysterious way, when we receive Christ as our Savior and Lord, we are drawn into the relationship that the Father and Son enjoy. 
I don't know how all that works. I don't know all the nuances of what that looks like. But guys, who else could you better be related to? This is the hope we have at Christmas. The hope is this baby that was born in a miraculous, mysterious way. Would, uh, would live a life that would reveal God on earth and, sh- and then demonstrate God's grace and God's truth by dying in my place and being raised from the dead and now inviting me into a relationship with himself so that I can rightly say I am a child of God. I- I'm a son of God. Now, not in the same eternal way that Jesus is, but I am invited into the relationship with God where I can run to the throne of grace and ask God to help me. Guys, don't lose sight of that this Christmas and the familiarity of the the Christmas carols and the lights and the busyness of everything. Don't lose sight of the hope. Take your worst case scenario for 2021. I know a lot of you go there anyway. Take your worst case scenario for what could go wrong, what could go bad in the middle of all of that, as bad as it could possibly get. There is a God in heaven who can who calls you his child. It doesn't matter. Now, guys, do I want my kids to grow up in a world where things are difficult and where people are running rampant and immorality is growing like it could? No, I don't want that at all. I want God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, just like we were taught to pray as we looked at the model prayer. I have fears about what's going to happen to the economy. I have fears about what's going to happen with the virus and the fact that we all have this kind of underlying fear of being close to each other and things like that. I have concerns about all kinds of different areas. You can add into that, by the way, just the normal stresses of worrying about how my kids are going to turn out and how are we going to, you know, I mean, all of those things, right? But in the middle of all of that, there is a God who, as Mike talked about last week, has been working throughout human history, who, as Jack talked about the week before, has been building his kingdom in ways that may not make sense to us and doing things that are unseen, who brought his kingdom to bear by sending this pink, squishy, alien-looking, couldn't-do-anything-for-himself baby. How do you know that he looked like an alien? Because every newborn looks like an alien, okay? I'm sorry. Every newborn baby looks weird. The God of the, of the universe did that for us so that you and I could have a relationship with him. He, as the eternal creator, the giver of light and life, came to earth, became flesh, and revealed to us the glory of God, showing grace and truth by saying, yes, sin must be punished, so I'm gonna take that punishment on myself. So here's the question for you. What are you hoping in this Christmas? The vaccine, stock market, political change, race relations, just kind of closing your eyes and hoping it's going to work out. What are you hoping in? I hope things get better. I really hope that 2021 is a tremendous year. But you know, we say all these things about 2020 being a dumpster fire. For those who are not... If you're not familiar with that phrase, just picture it for a second. It'll make sense. It's garbage, and it's garbage that's on fire, right? But I was talking with Samantha the other day. There's things that God's done in my heart this year that he never could have done any other way. 
There's ways that God's grown me. There's ways I've seen his faithfulness. 2020 has been a dumpster fire. I remember in January looking forward to, we had all of these plans about what we were going to do and how great Vacation Bible School was going to be and our ladies were going to meet every first Monday or second Monday, whatever it was, you know, and we had men's breakfast going and we were all rocking and raring to go, maybe go back to Zimbabwe, you know, all these. And God put the kibosh on all of it. But you know what? He didn't lose track of what was going on. So as we look to the coming year, as we look at Christmas, the hope we have for Christmas is not an emotion. It's not a feeling. It's in a person. Bow your heads with me. Close your eyes. The question for you today is truly, where is your hope? If you're here this morning and you're listening, has there been that time in your life where you have believed in the one that God sent for eternal life? Have you placed your trust in Jesus as your Savior and Lord? If not, then you can do that this morning. All you gotta do is wherever you are, whether you're watching online, whether you're here in person with us, say, Jesus, I've never truly trusted in you. I want to give my life to your control. If, however, you're here or you're watching online and, and you know you've made that decision to trust Jesus as your Savior and Lord, my question for you is, have you lost sight of the one who is your hope? Take just a moment where you are and say, God, I need you to be my source of hope and of life I need you to be my source of joy. Would you just today put down your anchor again and say, God, I'm trusting in you and you alone. Thank him for what he's done, for how he's revealed himself in grace and glory and truth. We've all received from his fullness. That's what John said. So God's not tapped out from giving you grace. He has a fullness that can give above and over and over and over and over again. So maybe you've gotten away from him. Maybe you've been doubting. Would you just solidify that again today? Asking him to be your only hope. Spend a moment there in prayer and then I'll close this in just a minute.